everyone. Welcome to the RM Sotheby's Car Show. Here I am from a, uh, a marquee in the grounds of Marlborough House in London. And we are here with this episode's special guest. We have Sam Fain. Sam, welcome. And uh, Sam, if you don't know the name Sam Fain, then you might know the name Scene Through Glass. Are you a bit like Elton John? I mean, do you like to go by Elton or, or Dwight? Uh, no, what's Elton John's real name? Does anyone know? Do, it, it, <laughs> does, does anybody call Sting by his real name? I didn't know he had a real name. Gordon. His name's Gordon. Oh, Gordon. Well, no wonder he changed it to Sting. Gordon Sumner. Yeah. That's no. right, isn't it? I'm do not people going call mad, you Seen or, yeah. or? I mean, I, I will. Be, like, you're slightly mocking, but jet, <laughs> Mr. Glass. STG. STG actually has become a thing. Which, do you know what? I didn't fight it. I was like, sure, I'll go with that. STG. So, uh, yeah, I get a lot of different things. Usually, it's a. Uh, hey, are you seen through glass? And I'm like, I guess. <laughs> um, and where so, did the name come from, Sam? I'm fascinated yeah. by that. It's a super weird one. When I started this whole YouTube venture, mm. uh, my initial idea was to walk around with something called Google Glass. It was right. a product from Google that they, it was like a prototype. It was a pair of spectacles oh, that yes. you could interact with. So you could walk around and say, hey Google, film this, or yeah. hey Google, call Bob, or whatever it might be. And so I thought I would just walk around the streets of London and go, hey Google, take a picture of cars that I saw. Uh, then I found out Google Glass was about a thousand pounds, never worked, and I was yeah. like, oh. But I developed all the branding materials, so I was like, okay, I can stick with this. So it developed into seen through the glass of a windscreen, yeah. seen through the glass of a camera lens, and, and I just rolled with it. So. Great. That's where it came from. It stuck. Yeah, it stuck. Somehow it stuck and it's worked. But uh, yeah, so I, you know, I am Sam, Sam from Seen Through Glass, STG, Mr. Seen Through Glass, whatever it might be. Well, but. and do you get recognised? I mean, do you, you know, have you been walking down, have you just walked out of boots having bought some paracetamol and somebody's gone, oh, it's you! <laughs> just my mum. Um, <laughs> strangely, yes. Uh, and actually, it happens way more than I ex ever expect that it should, you know. Okay, if I go to a Goodwood breakfast meet, mm. that's my audience. If I don't get recognised there, I'm yeah. probably doing something wrong. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Fair, um, fair But yeah, just walking out of boots, you don't expect it and there have been some super strange places where people have come up and said, hey, I watched the channel. Let's just go a little bit back in time. How, when you were at school, and you know, you're doing your GCSEs, were you saying to your teachers, I'm gonna be a YouTuber? <laughs> no, YouTube what, what, what it was wasn't the plan? a thing. <laughs> no, well, no, that's fair comment. And it definitely wasn't when I was doing my O-levels, not my GCSE. Um, so, go on, talk us through it. How did it happen? Uh, it's a, very, it's a bit of a long-winded story that I'll try and make very uh, concise. So, originally wanted to be a Formula One driver. Of course, obviously. No money, no talent, so ran out of options. Um, went to music, was my other great love. So I left okay. school wanting to be in the music industry. So I floated around, you know, trying to be in bands, trying to work at record labels and things like that for a few years. Didn't quite work out and ended up in PR. Mm. So it was quite a wide breadth of PR. And I loved that, and I did that for about five or six years, and I thought, right, I need to move my career on a bit. I'll go and be freelance, do my own thing, and maybe I can get some Formula One clients for PR. I was like, oh, what a full circle yeah. way of life. And after about six to nine months, I was just bored. I, I didn't have enough clients, I didn't know what to do with myself. And my dad was the one who said, find yourself a hobby that can distract yourself when you're not that busy. And my hobby was always making videos. I always loved making videos. And then my other great passion was, was motorsport or was cars. Mm. And at the time, Instagram was just kind of blowing up for street supercar photography. Right. Something which now I, can, I guess us car enthusiasts are very mm. familiar with. Mm. Here in London, every summer, 
every great supercar is driving from Mayfair to Knightsbridge. Yeah. You see them all. But when I was starting Seen Through Glass, it was quite a new thing, 2015, 2014, 2015. And uh, my route to work was uh, through Knightsbridge and Mayfair. So I worked out that I was seeing a lot of cars that these street spotters weren't seeing because it was on the way to work and things like that. So I thought, I'll take some photos, I'll take some videos of them, upload them, and if it earns me 100 quid a month, great. Happy yeah. days. Um, you know, it's a good distraction from my quite boring day job. <laughs> so, yeah, so not very long ago, 2015. And that sort of feels like yesterday, doesn't it? And, yeah. um, but it's amazing how the world of social media has moved in five, six years. Um, What's quite interesting to me is that I think when you, when you go back to when, do you like, by the way, I'm just going to ask a question. Do you like being called an influencer? Where do you stand on all of this? Do you, do you think of yourself, if you say to people in the pub, what, if, you, if you describe what you do, what do you tell I them? Say you I'm a, I'm a say I'm a YouTuber. A YouTuber. It, and it, influencer is a really tough one because it's become the generic term for mm. anyone who creates content online. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's so many variations of that. You can be an Instagrammer, a YouTuber, a TikToker, a yeah. blogger. But as it's become more of a uh, regarded pr profession, mm. uh, influencer is a more acceptable term. But uh, that carries with it certain connotations. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and yes. I'm sure, uh, maybe I was going to say maybe auctioneers is too broad for maybe you guys. I don't know, but it, there's two, influencers tends to sort of suggest 19-year-old yoga latte with yeah, yeah. 2,000 followers in Dubai yeah. talking about her breakfast smoothie, which look yeah. fine, super cool. You talk about <laughs> coffee a lot, though, to be fair. <laughs> oh, yeah, to be fair, <laughs> I'm such an influencer. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I use the term if I'm in a pitch meeting because a marketing manager will go, yeah, sure, influencer. But I tend to present myself as yeah, a YouTuber or yeah. a creator. Are you surprised how that transition, how quickly that transition has occurred? From car spotter that likes to point out certain cars, has a following amongst a quite nerdy car community initially, I'm sure. But then how that's evolved into much more of a lifestyle pursuit. One million percent and was never the plan. As I say, you know, it, it started as a hobby, as just a way for me to indulge in being a car nerd. Mm. And it's now so much more than that, and I'm indulging in yeah, the cinematography side of it, and, and so many other elements of my life that I'm passionate about. Mm. Uh, and it's become a business, so I, I also have to think of it differently than just a, a hobby or a passion project. But what I'm more blown away by is, even three years ago, mm. sitting down with friends, let alone companies and individuals, and trying to convince them that what I did was actually a real thing <laughs> and a job or had value to me or anyone else yes. was super hard where nowadays I think most kids in this country, mm. certain age groups, they all, if you ask them what they want to be when they grow up, they all say YouTuber yeah. or influencer, which yeah. is insane. So that's blown my mind more, mm. less so my own uh, journey has been the, yeah, the growth of social media and being a professional Influencer when, when did you realize that you could actually make a living out of it? I mean, uh, I mean when, when, did, when did you say, mm, okay, maybe this isn't just a hobby, this actually is my day job? It was, it was about nine months in, I went on a big trip with a, another huge guy within my space called Shmi150. Mm -hmm. uh, so he's been doing it much longer than I have. And at that time, maybe he had 
350,000 subscribers, but he was doing it professionally. Mm. And we spent a, a couple of weeks in Monaco with a few other lads, and I saw how they run their, ran their channels as businesses. Yeah. I was like, all right. <laughs> It's definitely more than I charged my client last month, so it looks good. And uh, so I went home and I analyzed it. At that point, from about a year worth of videos, I'd probably made 750 quid, something like that. Yeah. So I was like, this is, I can't, I, you know, this is, I can't quit the job today, but I made a whole plan of like how I could transition from, yeah, PR freelancer uh, into, into a YouTuber, so. I mean, cars are clearly your passion. It comes across really well on your channel, I think. And, and you are clearly an enthusiast, first and foremost, like many of us are who, who are in this industry. However, my question is, do you find that the longer you're in it and the, and the more exposure you have to all the events, to everything you see, all the cars that surround you, do you become slightly blasé and slight, does it slightly dumb down and muddy the water for you in terms of your passion, your enthusiasm for cars versus your business? One million percent. It's actually the, the saddest part about working in something you're passionate about. You know, I think there's a lot of people that say never make your hobby your job or the other way around. You know, yeah. you want to love what you do, mm. but sometimes you don't want to cross those boundaries. So where, where I've eventually ended up is for me, it's all about stories now. Sure. So, you know, that Chiron Supersport that's behind us, mm. unbelievable car, mm. super rare, super incredible. And five years ago, I wouldn't be talking to you both. I'd be taking Dribbling. photos. You'd be, you'd be licking its windscreen. Yeah. Yeah. And I wouldn't want to leave. <laughs> where, when I first saw it yesterday, when I came to some of these cars being loaded in, I was like, cool, Chiron Supersport. Like, and that kills me a bit. Mm. Whereas yeah. if that car had an intrinsic story that it was featured here or the owner took it there, and there are some great examples of that in this room. I, mean, I think the Enzo has 70,000 odd kilometers on the clock. Yeah. That for me makes it the car in the room. Like yeah. I'm obsessed with that because I want to know everywhere it went and what mm. it did and mm. why. It, like, so that's what excites me is, yeah. is the stories and learning the stories. Uh, the cars themselves, unfortunately, mm. you do just become a little bit yeah, yeah, I think that's blase. true for us as well, it, isn't it? it? I mean, it we, we, we love what we do, but we do live and breathe it, you know, seven days a week. So yeah. you, 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 you know, I, it's funny, somebody was talking to me uh, about Top Gear TV show. And I said, well, I actually haven't watched Top Gear for years because when I'm, at sitting, when I'm sitting on my sofa, with a, maybe with a glass of wine, uh, I actually need to remove myself from automobiles. I need to. It's know, I'm I not to, there yet. I mean, I, you're a little bit older than me. I'm still there at home, what? relaxing, watching car crap car on content. YouTube. I yeah. don't know why, but I do find it relaxing. I think it's because it enables me to separate myself, watching someone else do something different. And going back to that point you made about the stories, I think that is what motivates me more than anything else about this job: is finding the individual histories of these cars. Mm. I mean, take the little Morgan out there, for example. It's probably the cheapest car in the auction. But it did the RAC rally in 1952 and 1953. And that kind of element to these vehicles just makes it for me. And unearthing those stories, getting it out there to people, exposing it, and, and sharing what is an individual wonderful history is, mm. is what it's all about. And it's that kind of threshold level, isn't it? You know, we're spoiled where we get to be around these cars all the time yeah but if i said to i'm sure either of you or to myself okay well actually that super sport needs to be delivered to milan next week and you've got to drive it yeah. i'm fairly certain we'd all be very excited so whilst we might not have been really buzzing to see it get loaded off a truck and into a beautiful marquee uh it's about yeah that threshold and 
years ago I just wouldn't see these cars and that yes. would excite me. Now yeah. I've seen them, I want to drive them. And there is also that big difference mm. between seeing a car at a show in an auction room and then seeing it, as we say, in the wild. You know, if something drives past you in the street, even if it drives past me on the street, now to this day, I'm still like, oh my yeah. God. Yeah. Because it's so out of context to the, to the modern crap that we see on the road today. 100%, and, and this is such a nerdy game, and I can't believe I'm saying this out loud, but there is a, a game that me and some of my friends will do with either at dinner or if you're driving along the motorway. So the question at dinner is, what car would make you leave the table right now to go and look at if it drove past? What would yeah. you run out? Or if you're on the motorway, what car would make you turn around and try and chase it the other way? <laughs> that was the real spotting days. We do that less and less. But, you know, especially if you're in some parts of the world, in London, 100%, you hear exhaust notes at dinner. Yeah. And every now and again, we're like, what would make you get up and be like, what was that? And uh, I think that's the, you know, the passion never leaves you, mm. but it's just the amount yeah, that you're exposed to, yeah. it does, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. And sort of going back a little bit to, you know, whether somebody classifies themselves as, as an influencer or a YouTuber or whatever, it's interesting because I, I remember listening to a podcast that you did as a guest uh, with um, an ex-colleague of mine, Chris Harris. Okay. And because uh, Chris and I were both uh, road testers at Auto Car Magazine at the same time in the 90s. And it the was- good old days. Yeah. The good old days. <laughs> well, the magazines had money in those days, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because they were selling loads and they were pulling in loads of advertising and all the rest of it. But it, at Auto Car, uh, a bit like Auto Motor and Sport in Germany and, and, and Car and Top Gear magazine and all of those, we were kind of like w w what the car manufacturers thought of as the tier one media. Absolutely. So when there was a big car launch, we would always get to drive it first. It, you, know, it, you know, they'd fly us to Saint-Tropez or somewhere and we'd go off and drive cars in the hills and all the rest of it. And we were, um, you know, it was, a, it was lovely because we, we were, you know, they, they would deal with those types of magazines and then they had their tier twos and the tier threes. And of course, what's quite interesting is that in the in recent years, all of the car manufacturers have realised that actually, you know, the, the those that traditional media is a waning force, and uh, and and you know they're they're throwing an awful lot of time, energy, and budget behind people like yourself. And did you? I'm I'm guessing, and I'm sort of thinking back to that conversation that you had with Chris, is that. Um, there was a bit of animosity there, wasn't it? We're, we're, you, so, so all of those established car journalists who sort mm. of learnt this trade, man and boy, or whatever, you know, uh, maybe gone, you know, s s gone off to college to study to be journalists, sort of felt that they had earned their place in the world order. And all of a sudden, there were all these youngsters coming in with, you know, with an iPhone and a selfie stick. And um, how? So how did you know? Thinking back to those times I mean did you feel a bit, there was there a bit of friction there or not really I, I I was definitely fortunate where it didn't a lot of the friction didn't come my way I think yeah. you know uh, I I have definitely never tried it's a really hard one actually to to assess because firstly now everything seems so uh, jovial like we'll, we'll we all get on very well yeah, yeah. Uh, we don't tend to cross paths as much as we did there doesn't seem to be so much animosity but yeah at the beginning there was a little bit of friction animosity is probably well, I just, you know, I think that a lot of the traditional media was suddenly realising that when Rolls-Royce launches a new vehicle, all of a sudden there were a bunch of other people getting behind the wheel before they were. Sure. And they were finding that quite hard yeah, to deal with. I, I, uh, I'm, I'm sure. I think it was a changing of the times, right? Yeah. yeah. But, but I feel like from, from my side, it was more about 
how people consume media. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I just mm -hmm. I don't tend to read magazines anymore. No, I've, no. I've got a stack. Of my, you know, my parents still have the same house where I grew up. And when I go, I have this stack of F1 racing mags yeah. and Evo mm -hmm. and things like yeah. that, mm -hmm. which I used to literally just like adore. Where now I, I never read a magazine, no. so I, I consume everything online, visually or or via Twitter or whatever it might be, and therefore the magazines were, I think, quite slow to catch up with that. Mm. If we think of what Chris was doing early on with Chris Harris on Cars, yeah, yeah. some of the early Evo yep. content, some of the early Harry Metcalf stuff on Evo, Evo Diaries, that was incredible content that yeah. I think people absolutely loved. Nice to see you. Uh, <laughs> um, but, um, we're in a live environment here, people. Um, but a lot of the other more traditional magazines didn't necessarily make that switch as quick as yes. they could have. Yeah. Where nowadays yeah. you see they've all caught up and there have been yeah. amazing examples. I mean, Carfection, a bit of a sad story, but Henry Catchpole, even mm. Matt Watson with Carvey, like yeah. incredible yeah. content out there. They were just a bit slow off the mark, I mm. think. And you're right, it didn't sit right that someone like a Shmi or myself or whoever, yeah. there are plenty of examples, turned up with maybe not the uh, training uh, yes. <laughs> uh, that maybe they'd gone through. Um, but, yeah. but now it seems great now, and I don't think there's as much uh, bitterness between the ranks. Yeah. That's good. That's yeah. for, that, that's for, I, there was never any bitterness from my side, but... Uh, but you've slowly been like? accepted. Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you ask them. Yeah, yeah, and it seems, again, sort of not, not wanting to hijack the conversation you had with Chris, but I did find that quite interesting, because one of the, I think one of the things that he was saying, and, and, um, and I've sort of... I've heard this conversation a few times, not just in the car world, but, but in other areas uh, where, you know, uh, where people are uh, influencing online, is that, of course, um, most people who are pr producing this content are choosing to um, convey quite a glamorous lifestyle, a glamorous world. We're sitting in this room, millions and millions of pounds worth of cars. Um, I'm pretty sure that the three of us can't afford very much that, that's in here. And um, uh, the, the, uh, do you have a sense of any responsibility to your audience in, 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 in the sense that um, is it normalising um, being surrounded by very, very expensive goods? You know, because you'll get that, you'll have an influencer wearing a sort of a $10,000 pair of sneakers uh, and you've got all of these you know young people who don't have ten thousand dollars to spend on a pair of sneakers all of a sudden thinking oh my god how can I afford a pair of those I, I need to go and borrow some money you know <laughs> sure I, 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 no I think that's a problem with culture in general at the moment I think that's yeah. a, a, a much wider topic I think I think the the hardest part to portray about huge car youtubing let's say is that we're businesses, you know. I yeah. think initially at the start as well, that was the hardest bit that maybe maybe traditional journalists, and I say, I, I don't know, I'm just making assumptions here, struggled to grasp was they were like, well, here are these kids mm. making videos about what supercar they should buy. Mm. Who cares? Yeah. Well, unfortunately, the YouTube algorithm and the audience told us that they cared because mm. at that time, those videos got unbelievable views, mm. you know. Yeah. If I went to a... Ferrari 458 press launch and said, I'm thinking of buying a 458 or should I buy a 458 or here's my next car. The views on that would spike more than any other video. That's Whereas if I went and said, new Ferrari 458 test drive, yeah. no one would care. Yeah. So I think at the beginning there was, uh, yeah, people didn't quite realize that these YouTube channels were businesses. And we were sitting on the other end, looking at our analytics, trying to work out what videos performed well, what yeah. did well. And 
you've always got to find that balance of right do you want to get maximum views shareability reach yeah. and therefore sell your soul <laughs> um, or do you want to try and take some kind of artistic route and incredible and, and route where you're sure. authentic to yourself and I really really liken YouTube to, to the pop industry because uh, of my failed music career but, uh, <laughs> but also because there are so many similarities these days Firstly, to break through now is a 0.001 percentile. You know, everyone can be a singer, everyone can start a pop band, mm. but to actually get success is so difficult. Yeah. The same with YouTube. But also, you've got to make that choice. Are you, I don't know my pop music, uh, Miley Cyrus or a Taylor Swift, or are you, Coldplay's probably not a good example, but you know, <laughs> yeah. are, are you a credible artist? And, and that's what you've always got to weigh up. And for me, I've just made the content I want to make, yeah. within reason, there have yeah. been, yeah. been a few bad decisions, um, and not chase the big numbers. But, but don't forget that we are running businesses, not, yes. just, not just passion projects. So I guess that, that's how I would answer the no, I think moral line question. Yeah, yeah. no, that's fair. And, that's and, fair. and to that point, I've, I've seen a lot of YouTube content whereby people who cover mainly modern stuff, right? They, they, they work a lot with modern manufacturers, they go to press launches, they drive lots of new cars. Then they do a video about a 2.7 RS and it gets no views and it's not interesting to their audience. I mean, do you think that, that to a certain extent, in your case, you do just follow your passion and go, right, I know this is not gonna get loads of views, but I wanna do it and there are a small proportion of my audience out there that will appreciate it. That's exactly it. You know, mm. I, Firstly, you only live once. Secondly, I fell into this job and life completely by accident. And I would, I would not be true to myself, but I also would kick myself as and when this career ends if I went, well, I didn't get the chance to drive a 2.7 RS because I thought, oh, I won't get views. Like, yeah. who cares if it doesn't get views? I drove a 2.7 RS. So <laughs> there have definitely been many times where I, yeah, I knew the video might not perform mm. in terms of numbers or interactions or whatever, but it was worth it for yeah, my own personal experience, but also yeah. for that specific audience. Yeah. You know, it might be a quarter of the, the wider audience, yeah. but who cares? Mm. They might enjoy it, uh, they might find it interesting, and for me personally, it, it, it grows my experience. Sure. And, and I guess, you know, you, if you take a bit of a punt on a car that, you might not, that might not be core to what you believe your audience is interested in, of course, Ultimately, you may well start finding a slightly more diverse audience and, and start growing it in other areas. And Because I, I do think um, for us in this world, um, you know, we, a, a lot of what we love and, and a lot of the stuff we sell, you know, it, it is older stuff. You know, I, I know we're surrounded by a lot of quite modern supercars and hypercars today, but, you know, we have, you know we're selling pre-war cars, cars from the 50s. And, and the, you know, there's a lot of amazing a lot of amazing old cars a lot of those cars have got amazing histories and it's just, it, it kind of people need to be educated don't they because you, you might love modern ferraris and porsches um but actually if you if you could actually just get a bit of exposure to uh, something from the 1950s uh, it, it, you know that's and that's how people grow the passion isn't it and and this is exactly and i think also it comes down to uh you know Obviously, I'm not a professional. I never trained to do this, so it, it does all come from just a, an enthusiast point of view. And you know, this room is a perfect example, right? Uh, with my YouTube head on, the Chiron Supersport is probably the car that's going to get the most views. Yeah. yeah, probably. However, aside from me telling you that's a Chiron Supersport, 
I'd have to read a few pages of, like, I can't tell you much. Okay, it's like a 300 plus one and it goes yeah. really fast and it's orange and black. And I'm like, I kind of run out of things to say now. <laughs> Where the 550 Barchetta, yeah. no one on the internet will care about that car, yeah. but I could talk for about two hours about it. And <laughs> so for me, yeah. it was far easier for me to walk in this room yeah. and film a, a really in-depth video and a video that I'm proud of and that I know I'm going to be passionate in about a car that maybe no one will care about mm. than sitting here slaving and sweating and worrying that I'm getting facts wrong and having to Google things. So that's the, the, maybe the lazy part of me, I don't know, but or at least the selfish part of me where I'd far rather indulge in those things that I'm confident about yeah. than have to force a little bit of fakeness and try and, you know, yeah, pretend something just to get views because, sure. you know, it, it's just going to be killer for everyone where yeah. mm. there are better people mm. to do a walk around in that car and tell you about it than, than me. Yeah. Um, so come, come and watch my 550 Barchetta <laughs> review instead. <laughs> what, what, what do you know about your audience? Because um, I, I think it must be really nice. Uh, so when I was a magazine journalist, you would, go, you would do a story, you would sit at a computer, you would write it, and then next week um, it's in WH Smith on a shelf. And actually you've got... No idea whether anyone liked it or not. There was no, you know, okay, a magazine has a letters page, you know, Mr. Angry from St. Albans saying, I've just read Pete Haynes' article on whatever, and it was absolutely dreadful. Um, so you get, you know, there was a little bit of feedback, but, um, and everything I wrote was dreadful, by the way, uh, which is why, that's why my, journal like my, video. Like my journalism career was very short. Um, but you, you're obviously having what I think must be really nice in the world we live in today is that you, you know, you do something today in a few hours, you're getting lots of feedback, you're getting lots of comments, you've got, and you've got this dialogue day. So that must be quite interesting for you. Yeah, nice, nice isn't the word that I would choose. <laughs> I suppose they are they very quick, are they very quick to tell you that they love something and also very quick to tell you that that was absolutely awful? Yes, uh, yeah. uh, and not just the audience. You know, social media is a cruel beast because well, yeah. uh, it yeah. tells you through a number of ways. I mean, YouTube as an example, when you upload a video within the first hour, it tells you how that video is performing out of one to 10 of your last 10 videos. Right. So you live your life on that stat the one out of 10, three out of 10, six out of 10. Yeah. And when you see a nine or a 10 out of 10, everything drains from your body because you're like, why? It says, your video is underperforming. Thanks, YouTube. <laughs> um, but then also if you get a, a one out of 10, as in your video is flying, it's the best video that's performed on the channel for months. Mm. You can open up the comment section and you'll read the first five comments. This is the best video I've filmed. I love this video. Yeah. Sam, you're killing it. The fifth comment is, music was crap. Yeah. And I'm like, oh. what is that about YouTube and music? I mean, are they going to sort that out one day? Well, I mean, the music is tough because copyright, but it, just in general, it's, it's those little digs or bites of whatever it could be. Yeah. Or, or you said it was 304 miles an hour. It's actually 304.25. Yeah, oh, you're yes. not a real car guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but if you read all of them, you're, you're opening yourself up to that exposure. Yeah. It doesn't matter, you know, you, you develop a very thick skin yeah. and you have to laugh at a lot of these comments, but it can't help, you know, when you're in a creative industry and I'm sure, you know, that, that one, uh, you know, yeah. reader feedback, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, Peter's yeah. article was crap. It, it does really sting. And so it's great because it helps you, yeah, could tell what you're doing slightly. And if you get five videos where they go, Sam, you're going in a weird direction here. We don't like this. Cool. Get the idea. Okay. Um, but you have to take it with a pinch of salt and in yeah. general it's, it's, it's great and especially with the variety of content I try and create 
it's really good to know what people are enjoying and what they're not yeah. enjoying. And for me, comments are everything. If right. a video gets 10,000 views or 100,000 views, I base it all on the comments. Really? As long as the comments are good. Yeah. Because, you know, if it can be so many other factors that decide how many people actually end up seeing it. Yes. You know, so if it's 10,000 people, but every single comment is, I love this video, it's been fantastic, cool. Yeah. Fine, just hasn't got the shareability that I thought. Maybe I got the title wrong. Yeah. Maybe the mm. thumbnail, maybe I uploaded it at the wrong time. Maybe there was a Grand Prix, maybe there was an auction everyone was tuned into watching. <laughs> like, you know, you never know what those outside factors might be. Yeah. So I focus wholly on the comments and try and look past the ones that just, this edit yeah. was awful. <laughs> oh, but I, it, it's interesting. I don't know what you think, Will, because, you know, we move with the times at RM Sotheby's. Um, uh, we try to. And obviously, in the last few years, we've, we now produce an awful lot more uh, video content than, than we ever would have done historically going back a few years. And um, we, you know, we, we produce a lot. And I sometimes go onto YouTube and look at the hit numbers and for, for different films. And I find it fascinating as to the films that do well and the films that, you know, a hundred people have watched and nobody and because you, I'm constantly um, proved wrong in the sense that I think this 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 little bit of content's going to be everyone's going to love this and it bombs and then you stick something else up there that you think's quite dull and yeah. isn't and and and, you know, and it flies yeah. yeah and it's really I find I'm finding it impossible to try and work it out but I think the biggest thing is as, as social media has grown that people have forgotten or got lost in is the numbers right because we all get used to seeing these sort of stupid numbers youtubers out there who have 50 million subscribers and videos with 100 million views okay so you might have a video that gets 100 views but all it takes is one person who wants to buy what's behind me an rs mm. and he's done it he's he's been looking for the video he's found the video and, and yeah. gone and, and i think we're all too quick to judge comparatively yes uh, and especially mm. comparatively with your own content but also other people's content and, and you know you forget about the, the credibility and the engagement factor and, yeah. and who that audience is. Yeah. So I'm with you, I, it kills me. I'm always like, oh, this is the worst video I've filmed in months, it flies. Yeah. And the one that I've been filming for three days with multiple angles and I've slaved away, no views. But, <laughs> you know, you come to yeah. accept that. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and, you know, the, the, I think one of the challenges for us is that, it, it, as Will was saying, you know, you cars with really interesting history, you can't convey uh, a, a car's fascinating history without going to some detail. And the problem is you, you sort of walk that fine line between producing a three minute film, which is a sort of a three minute documentary where somebody's talking very intelligently about the history of a car. Um, and, and, but of course, a lot of people don't have the attention span to, to sit down and listen to that. And so we're sort of constantly fighting with, well, we, we want to educate people because this is a really great story. People need to hear this. And, but actually balancing that with the fact that we know people kind of and that, well, that, but the, don't get turned on by watching that type of content. But that's why I think we've shifted and we've kind of moved towards working with people that want to tell a slightly different story and, yeah. and, and take a slightly different stance on it and make it slightly more appealing and, and less like, this is a 1934 <laughs> Railton. It was, you know, and yeah. you know that's been done, and and it has a limited shelf life on a platform like YouTube. Um, I, I want to ask you a couple of quick fire questions. Okay, right? so sure. I just, you know, just very very quickly, uh, we'll rattle through them quickly. So, question we always ask all of the specialists at every auction without fail: one car in the auction, take home which one? Challenge for dollar. Okay, but that's actually, actually weird. <laughs> that is weird because it's, well, it's my... your consignment. Don't moan. <laughs> Don't moan. 
<laughs> you know what? That was such a guttural reaction because that is my default de facto. That's my all-time favourite car. Even if it wasn't in this room, I would have said it. Um, in this room, I lie because there was, so, I mean, Enzo, 550 Barchetta, I mean, any of the EB110s, like, but Chandra Dali is, is my all-time great. Okay. See, do you know what I like about that answer? He could have taken the Chiron home. Yeah. And then just all his audience. And then sell it. Yeah. <laughs> and bought 18 yeah. challenge in every car. It's a very um, good point. Okay. Worst car you've ever driven? Aston Martin DBX. Really? Oh, Aston Martin. Wow. You're not invited to the That's next That's so show. aggressive, but I'm just going for it anyway. Okay. Best car you've ever driven? Uh, maybe. Uh, 250 short wheelbase by GTO Engineering, so the... One of their uh, re recreations. recreations. I'm told don't drive them in Italy, apparently. Yes, as I said, maybe within this audience there'll be a few <laughs> original owners going, oh, but for me, having not driven an original, nearly Very cool, climb. very, very cool. Um, best car event in the world? Monterey Car Week as a week. I think, okay. I think the quail within it is my favourite event of the week with the whole week. You've got to go from like Tuesday to Sunday. Okay. The whole week. Mm. Uh, best car location in the UK to film car for what you do. If you had your choice, right, so I'm going to do a video on that 27RS. Where are you going with that car? Oh, um, well, you're thinking of driving roads. Well, just, just, just uh, no, it could be anywhere. It could be Brooklyn's, it could be a studio, it could be, any, you know. I'm, I am, I am not a child of Brexit. I tend to be on the Eurotunnel more often than not. Um, but if I had to stay in this country, I go to Scotland more than Wales. Okay. So, so Scotland, probably, if Love. I really want to go in, because it's quiet. We need quiet yes. roads in Scotland's quiet. Yeah, we used to use, uh, at Autocar, we used to go to Crickhowl in Wales. Okay. Uh, good roads around there. Or we used to go to a, a location in, on the Yorkshire Moors uh, where, uh, but the trouble is with all these places, there's a lot of sheep. Okay, sheep. Uh, yeah. You, 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 you come over the crest of a hill. It's in, in the road. In a 996 It's not going to move. No. And there's a bloody sheep there. They're not quick. And they're looking right at you Good thinking... Good brake test. Yeah. 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 <laughs> or actually, no, great for YouTube. Nearly, nearly killing a sheep in a XXX. Actually, another viral. quick fire question. Yeah. You've driven loads of cars. Worst moment in a car in terms of just brown trouser moment? Oh, there have definitely, definitely been a few. I'll go with the one that first came to my mind. Uh, I bought a Jaguar F-Type R, the first generation. Yes. 550 horsepower, rear-wheel drive. Uh, about two days later, we drove down to the south of France. Uh, I was following a friend in a McLaren 675LT. I think we had a Lamborghini Gallardo with us. Fast cars, yeah. F-Type a little bit out of its depth. I was like, come on, we're going to keep up. Uh, went around the corner and there was a car overtaking a tractor coming the other way on a mountain pass. I actually don't know how all three of us somehow got through. Did you scream a little yes. bit? Did yes. you stop the car? <laughs> no, I, there was go, a lot of, lot of dirt right. and this and Everything stopped and after I was like out of sport mode, into auto. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so there have been plenty of others, but that, that was probably sticks with me as being one of the worst. Yeah. Cool. Um, this is a question that's a bit serious and has um, probably quite a long answer, but are you worried about the future of the car industry as it is now? No, because, um, because of a few things that I've been exposed to recently. Uh, I recently had an amazing opportunity to work with a, a synthetic fuels company yeah. um, who are really developing, well actually already supplying 
carbon neutral fuel to World Rally Championship mm. uh, and a few other motorsport championships as well, which suggests that there could be options mm. uh, or carbon friendly mm. options mm. Uh, to keeping combustion engine cars on the road. These are enthusiast cars on the road. Sure, uh, It's not perfect. There's yep. still work that needs to go into it. But I think I don't understand the rhetoric of we've all got to go electric. No. That doesn't make sense to me. That worries me. I, that does worry me. Yeah. Well, how all governments and all manufacturers have seemingly just decided we're going to follow Elon Musk down that rubber hole regardless. But having said that, in the last 12 months, I think there seems to be more of an acceptance or realisation that it probably isn't the only solution. It's definitely yes. one route to go for sure. Yeah. And in some situations, it's a great option. Yeah. But as a worldwide solution to reducing carbon emissions, uh, it does make sense. And this room is a prime example of how over the last hundred years we've developed the combustion engine into being the most incredibly mm. efficient and incredible machine mm. and to just get rid of it because we can't think of a greener way to fuel it makes no sense to me so yeah, yeah i'm more hopeful now than i was 12 to 24 months ago oh, that's good um but it's in, it's interesting and what will this auction look like in 25 years time i don't know that's more for you to answer than me I mean, we've um, talked about it a little bit. We talked about it a little bit on this podcast, haven't we, in in Mm. terms of talking to Everati about the electrification of um, of, of, of classics, you know. Um, Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, there are people that buy these cars because they love them and they want to drive them. And, of course, you know, in 20 years, it's hard to know whether we're going to be allowed to drive them. Um, and, 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 and of course there's the other side of this whole world which is buying something because you're hoping it's going to be an investment. Well it's only going to be an investment again if, if, the, if they can continue to be used. So I, I, we're sort of at, we're in an interesting period. Um, I, don't think, I don't think fear for the future at the moment is having any, any impact on the market. I don't think anyone's buying, I don't think anyone, no one's not going to buy that 27RS because they worry that in 10 years from now they can't drive it. But we're going to have to see how things work out, aren't we? Uh, and to flip a question back to you then, are cars or do cars have the potential to become art in the sense where maybe we're in a situation where we can't drive them? I would still, if I had the money, have a Zonda or an Enzo in my living room of my mansion on display way more than I'd have a Monet or a Picasso because I I don't relate to those items. Mm. For me, these are artworks for for my life. Yeah, it's a good question. And I think the answer to that is definitely yes. Because I think as time goes on and and cars, modern cars, in my opinion, become far more boring as, 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 uh, as, as we develop to this exciting new future. Um... I think these sorts of vehicles represent a perfect cross-section of design, of engineering, and the appreciation of them is moving much more in, towards the art direction. And look, you know, we are RM Sotheby's, right? You know, an art auction house. And the crossover there is becoming more and more obvious to me that we are producing, well, we sold a Michael Schumacher car in a contemporary art auction. Yeah, it was yeah. the first time that has ever had ever happened. That was probably five and years ago. And the Alfa Romeo back cars we did as well. The back cars. We marketed them as, mm. as art. And I think the contemporary art community really stood up and went, oh, actually, those do look sure. like art. And well, and of course, the slight, I mean, what, what we know certainly sort of in the supercar, hypercar market is when you do, when uh, flying in the face of the uh, odometer on the Enzo is that how, how often are we seeing 10 or even 20 year old cars that have done 800 kilometers in their entire yeah. existence so clearly um, 
a lot of people are buying these cars not to drive. And you know, if they banned the consumption of alcohol tomorrow, would it have any impact on the wine market? Or probably not, because none of the expensive wine that gets bought at auction gets drunk. Good point. Um, Very good so point. people will probably keep buying and selling expensive wine. Uh, the fact that they can't drink it uh, doesn't matter a They won't go to anywhere. Because yeah. they won't go to anywhere. <laughs> but it's so totally subjective at the same time. Yeah. Like some people take oh. cars, art, what are you talking about? <laughs> but I look around this room and the, the difference of shapes and styles and, and, and uses for these vehicles. You know, that Delahaye or that 300S Mercedes over there is designed completely different reason to that Group B rally car. Sure. And I love that, that weird diversity of, of different cars suiting different tastes, suiting different requirements. But I think as time goes on, I think these cars get more and more appealing to the art crowd. And, and I think they can see that, that, that crossover between cars as art. Yeah. Yeah, and they're evocative of, of eras, you know. I think that's the yeah. thing, you know, as designers, you know, now we have the chance to be able to look back over such a, uh, a wide span of time that these cars have been around. Mm. You, it really represents a different time in, in life and history. So, yeah, no, I, I'm hopeful. I, you know, I don't, I don't think this is the, the end. <laughs> um, but it's definitely, we're definitely going through a change. So let, let's see what happens in the, in the years yeah. ahead. Yeah, so interesting times. Well, Sam, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you, thank you for coming to our, our auction here in London. And uh, uh, I don't know what the rest of your day or weekend <laughs> has in store. Um, but um, are you, are you going to... Uh, we've got the London's Brighton on Sunday. Yes, no, I'm not uh, quite yeah, going to manage that. You, know, I, I, you don't want to be in Hyde Park <laughs> yeah, at 4am. Yeah, that, that I actually, actually did try and film it a few years ago and about three people watched. So uh, <laughs> not only is it an exhausting event, it had no business sense. So I think instead I'll be uh, probably trying to explain to my wife how I bid on a challenge for that I couldn't afford. So <laughs> that's probably where we're going to end up. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thanks a lot, Sam. We'll, really encourage, we'll encourage you to buy anything that you want here. Thank uh, you for having you. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Hello everyone, welcome back to part two of RM Sotheby's car show. I'm going to talk a little bit about the market and uh, what's going on in here in London with chairman of RM Sotheby's in Europe, Mr. Peter Woolman, and car specialist Felix Archer. Gents, London auction, oldest annual sale in the European calendar, 16th, 16th year to 16th year? 16th year, yeah. New venue, what do you think? I love the venue, Peter. I love the fact that we've got this wonderful transparent roof on the marquee and we're looking at blue skies, and I'm not sure that's going to last. Um, but what's really nice for me is this setting of Marlborough House. As you said, this building was built in 1711. Uh, and as you say, for those that can't see it, it's right behind us. Uh, it's illuminated <laughs> at night. It looks beautiful. We've got a, a lineup of cars outside as well. Uh, it was built in 1711 for uh, Sarah Churchill, who was the Duchess of Marlborough. Uh, and it's now the home of the Commonwealth um, of Nations. So it's a historic building, it's in a historic part of London, just around the corner from the Royal Automobile Club, with whom we partner for this event, uh, for the London to Brighton run, mm -hmm. which is being held on Sunday, and we're all doing, which I'm really excited about. Yeah, in the pouring rain. In probably. the rain, exactly. And also the, the other nice thing, well, I think the other great thing... Doesn't uh, want to do it. <laughs> this year, in this venue, the whole structure is all within this sort of square of St. James's, the Mall and Pall Mall. Yep. So right outside Marlborough House on Marlborough Road, outside St. James's Palace, where all the tourists are to go to watch the, uh, the lovely ceremonies that are regularly held there, I think most days of the week. 
we're going to have the Concorde. 100 veteran cars in the London to Brighton Concorde mm. uh, uh, as well. So that's all happening here in this uh, in, yeah, in, it, in it, this vicinity. It's special. It is special. And, and uh, I mean, it's funny, yesterday when we were unloading the trucks with all the cars, big line of people with the cameras, you know, all, all, all of the Instagrammers out in there photographing the supercars. It's, got, it's been a really good atmosphere and uh, we've got a cocktail reception happening fairly soon. Uh, if it feels like I'm talking rather quickly, it's because we've got a cocktail reception happening uh, very soon. And, and you um, need a drink. Uh, mm. and, and I haven't, <laughs> haven't, start, I haven't started drinking yet. He's and lying, I, it starts I, in three I, hours. I, I like to have a head start. Yeah, yeah it's only nine o'clock. I like, I like, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. It's been a while since we've done a podcast, so it's, we've, got, we've gone through quite a long chunk of the summer, and some very significant sales have happened in that time. Not least, our North American colleagues put on a, an astonishing Monterey sale. Uh, how many dollars of worth of cars did we sell in Monterey? In fact, i tell you something, I'm, we've, I've got that written 230, down. So. 239 million dollars. 239, and then there was also the sale of the, uh, we can't talk about the price because that's the point of our sealed bid platform, but we sold the McLaren F1 as well that same weekend on the sealed bid platform. We did. Add into the overall total, although that part of it's secret. But, to, but even ignoring the McLaren F1, nearly $240 million, uh, that is an astonishing sum of money. And I, in the build-up to Monterey, we kept seeing these amazing cars coming in, big collections, uh, a, lot, a lot of big collections in Monterey. And we're not talking about collections of $100,000 cars, we're talking about collections of multi, multi uh, million dollar cars. And, and a really broad spread of stuff, so a lot of pre-war cars. And I think we were all sitting around going, wow, that's a lot of cars. Getting them into the sale is one thing. Getting that number of cars sold is something else. And as it was, what we sold 95% of those cars. I think that exceeded our expectations. So that's a really good sign, yeah? It's. I think, every, I think everyone will, will, you know, went into that sale with, uh, this stuff is amazing, this should all sell, but this is a lot of value to sell. Um, and we, were, we quickly, immediately on the Thursday night, got the answer, which is the money's out there and the passion's out there and everything flew. Um, so the market's in a really great place. Um, and obviously Monterey is a sort of Glastonbury of, the, of this car world that we operate in. Um, but it was extraordinary. It was just everything. It, you, could pick, you could pick any car in that catalogue and it was special. Um, which actually takes us to this sale because I think every year we say, oh, this is the best year ever. This is gonna smash through the glass ceiling of what was possible. But genuinely, I do actually think that this is the best London lineup we've ever had, the best location. Everything has a great story. Uh, is special, rare in some way, and it's just fantastic. I think I think you're absolutely right, Felix. I mean, that was our biggest ever Monterey. Mm. This is all set to be our biggest ever London auction. But what particularly intrigued me in, in Monterey is we had three collections. Uh, one was quite heavy on pre-war cars, but we sold the Tulip Wood H6B Hispano Suiza at a 540K for fantastic money. Then we had a great selection of cars from the 1950s, sports racing cars, through to modern supercars, mm. you know, F40s, F50s, etc. Yeah. Mm. And what we saw is they all did well, mm. but in particular we noted that there was a, a real uplift in the modern supercar values as well, particularly things like F50s. They seem to have done really well. But it's not just our sale. I mean, this the point is in Monterey, 
it's Monterey Car Week. You've got the Concorde Elegance, you've got other auction houses putting on fantastic auctions. So whilst we still managed to sell over three days, $230 million sale. Yeah, well, they, they, they were- they In were, total, it's more like half a yeah, billion dollars yeah, or $400 yeah, million. Yeah. So that yeah. staggering amount of money invested into this, this, if you wish, hobby, this passion, this nostalgia. Yeah. And that's really exciting. It really bodes well for what we've got coming up in the next 24 hours. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose it's fair to say in, in, in the interests of sort of a balanced appraisal, North America is in particular a strong market, isn't it, at the moment in terms of, you know, the, the, there's a lot of people very happy to be buying and selling and, and digging deep into their pockets, which is, um, Monterey's always been like that. Um, uh, I mean, Europe is never quite such a free-flowing market as as as, as North America um, has proven to be. But nevertheless, I think the the vibe in Europe is 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 still it's strong, isn't it? I think we're we're feeling. I think it's that, it's, it's energy. You know, when you when you attend a North American auction, there's energy in the room. It's vibrant. People are cheering. They're standing up, clapping. They're slapping each other on the back. And we saw it, for example, with the charity lot. The Sally Porsche. Yeah, you know which, there was a yeah, there incredible. was a car that was being sold by Pixar for char charity, uh, mimicking the Porsche from Cars. Um, you know, within two bids, it was at a million dollars, and I don't. I think the value of the car was about three hundred and fifty thousand dollars as a car. But it was a one-off. But the energy was phenomenal, and what, I think that was three point six million dollars in the end. Yeah, I think it was. I something mean, probably like that. almost ten times the value of the car. But the unique appeal, the energy is infectious. We see that, and, and that's what we want to get back to here in London. I think the difference between um, what happened in Monterey was like being in an internal flight in America, where you land and everyone is a, is a, everything is an event uh, in that sort of in that tin can in the air, um, and that's the energy that we want to replicate here. Yeah. Um, and what we have on display here that's going up for auction tomorrow is a lot of the greatest hits of what's been flying this year, um, you know, particularly the big five, you know, the F50, the F40, the 288, the LaFerrari, the Enzo. Mm. All of those cars have been so hot this year. Um, and we've got the three incredible Group B cars. Um, there's a bit of everything here, which is why I think if you get no, the people in the room, um, we've got the product, and that's what's really exciting. And also, Felix, Monterey was comprised, large, a large percentage of the cars on offer were collections, mm. and people like buying from collections. Yeah. There's something about collections. They say, if that's a great car, then probably other cars in that person's collection are great cars yeah, too. If, if, He's if discerning. Some, if somebody owns 10 amazing cars, it's unlikely they're going to have one donkey. Yeah. You know? yes. So I, 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 I get that completely. You, you've both mentioned sort of Ferrari cars uh, as being something that kind of uh, got onto another level in Monterey, F40s, F50s. Let's just talk about that for a little bit, um, because that is a really marked thing, isn't it? I mean, an F40, five minutes ago, it was a million. Now, now what are we thinking? You know, for a good F40, it's... Where two million, two million in that doubled. in that region. It's, you know, it, I mean, it, I mean, it hasn't doubled overnight, but you know what I mean. The, the the appreciation in that area of the market, F50s, you know, crazy, great. I mean, you know, so I, I think as well. I mean, you ha you have to factor in world events coming out of COVID. You know, the things that are going on, the less happy things that are going on in the world, and people still see motor cars, especially this type of motor car, as a great way to invest some money 
enjoy that investment, your hard-earned money, and I still think there's an attitude of it's, it does fly a bit in the face of traditional investment platforms which are more affected by world economic situations and other factors. But with this, whether your car goes up in value or not, in the time you've owned it, you've had the enjoyment of ownership of that car. And some good examples here are, you know, the Enzo mm. that we've got in the sale, uh, that's part of the Gran Turismo collection. That's been one owner from new, and I think it's done, what, 70,000 yeah. odd, odd? I mean, yeah, bonkers. You know, and it's great to see, that is great love it. They, you know, there's something really, there's, uh, I don't know. It's been it, enjoyed, and as Peter said, um, I think there are, definitely people that keep an eye on the markets and maybe they want to get something tangible be it bricks and mortar or a car or watches or wine but I think the the big message that we want to send out and that has happened this year is people are buying because they want to buy and because the investment is the enjoyment um, and if at the end of their ownership cycle in five years or ten years they come out uh, with a positive price and then, then great and if not when well, they've enjoyed the car um, and I mean, what we're celebrating here, Felix, what we're celebrating here at Marlborough House and in association with the Royal Automobile Club, outside at the Concours and on Sunday on the London to Brighton run, dawn of motoring, you know, 1890s, 1897, finishing in 1904. Around the time you were born? Around the time um, that I was being dreamt about for the future. Um, it couldn't possibly <laughs> be that good. That one day we want something that good. Um, <laughs> But the point is, right here, we've got you know, a, a 2022 Bugatti Chiron 300 plus. I mean, it's, it's effectively a brand new car. Mm. I'm, I believe the owner has achieved the magical 300 plus number in it. And he probably said once is enough. But the fact is you've got that juxtaposition of old and new, of rally, of, you know, it's, it's such a lovely mixture. Mm. And I, I'm looking forward to seeing some of the, you know, some of the veteran car owners coming in here and enjoying some of these and vice versa you know yeah. people coming to look at these cars being perhaps infected by the passion of the veterans yep we have been recording two podcasts uh today um and uh which one's chatting... your um favorite so far favorite podcast yeah mm. which one of the two? Oh, oh, the previous one right okay yeah. I mean, I, I'm, only, I'm only here with you two because you know, <laughs> I ran out of options. But, uh, 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 how, but how can we improve this? <laughs> I, I was chatting to uh, Sam Hancock, well-known historic racer, but, but part of that conversation we were talking about the role of events in underpinning... He, Sam was talking about why certain race cars are becoming... Uh, you know they're in demand because there are great events that support the racing of those types of cars and we all know that to be true um, and uh, the London to Brighton is uh, the oldest car event in the world isn't it uh, it's a phenomenal event ancient cars and here we are in 2022 and you look at a veteran car and it, you you know for a lot of people um, you can't really relate to it. You know, it looks like an old horse-drawn carriage without the horses, and, and indeed some of them are, aren't they, effectively that. Um, but people still love doing it. And, you know, the market for veteran cars is 
in no small part underpinned by the London's Brighton Veteran Run, and that's why those a lot of those cars are, are so in demand. You look down the list of entrants for Sunday's Run, and it's a who's who of car collecting, or museum owners, you know, it's phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, the people that still enjoy the dawn of motoring. Yeah. And I think the Royal Automobile Club's input into that is also, you know, it's high energy. There's, this is London Motor Week. We talked before about Monterey. That's kind of Car Week, Pebble Beach, and all the different things happening, mm. the other auctions. Kind of achieving that in, in, in no small part here. Mm. Very different, but we are achieving that in, in just the same way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I also think there is, there is genuinely uh, little comparison to driving one of those things on an A road in terms of visceral driving. It's sort of like you've got fear, You've got, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you've got trepidation. Yeah. It's, yeah. But it's such an enjoyable event because everyone is willing their car to the end. They've got the camaraderie of everyone in their car. And at the end of the day, there's a, there's a wall of people cheering you on. And it's an incredible celebration of that age of car. I think, I think you get fewer flies in your teeth driving these, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, they focus on the uh, headlights. Yeah. I, first year I ever did the London Sprite, 60 miles, Hyde Park to Madeira Drive in Brighton, 60 miles, took me eight hours. Yeah. Eight <laughs> That's hours. That's not a good advert. <laughs> but there was a lot of driver error involved in that, and, and there was a little, little bit of mechanical... Uh, yeah. You say that some of the bigger cars, is three hours, and that, you know, not, oh, yeah, not, not yeah. much more, and that, you know, they are driving in among modern traffic, mm, yep. which is no mean feat as well, considering most of them don't really have brakes that you could uh, rely on very heavily. Well, the last podcast uh, uh, I recorded was with you, Peter, and we went out to Stuttgart and we had a look around the museum. Now, our, our friends from Mercedes, they're here in London and they're taking part in the run and they brought their Simplex over. Uh, that is over 30 horsepower, that yeah, car, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Um, so they'll be there in sort of 45 minutes. That car can get, that, I don't know, I can't remember exactly what year that car is, um, but that will get to Brighton as fast as you'd get there in a Carrera 2, mm. probably. You know, really, it's, it just storms down there. Mm. So I think what's fun about it as well, just moving a little bit away just from the cars, it's the carnival. When you turn up at Hyde Park and, you know, on Sunday morning, wind, rain, whatever it might be doing, the spectators, early in the morning, it's still dark, people are warming up their cars, but it's also the way they're dressed. And interesting, I've got to think about what I'm going to wear on Sunday. And oh, when I know, you do, that's Unless you wear motorcycle kit to keep you dry, you're not keeping in period. Actually, the things that you would wear that, to keep you dry are no, not that different to what you would have worn in 1903. I remember um, doing the run with you and you turned up in white cashmere. <laughs> yeah, okay. And I, 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 you know, I looked at Peter and I thought, white cashmere, it's London to Brighton. If you remember, Peter, there was a nod, it was a nod to the white tyres that we have on oh, the Cadillac. Is that what it was? Yeah, I thought it was a bit of a Tony Curtis look. You had, you had an oil smudge <laughs> on your sleeve in the first 10 minutes, you know. But um, no, I, it, I think it's going to be raining this Sunday, as it happens, and I am in quite a pedestrian car, and I'm thinking, well, if it's raining heavily, I'm going to... Does it have a screen? <laughs> Does it have a screen? Barely has a steering wheel. Felix. It no, it doesn't have. A, it doesn't have a screen. I'm really looking forward to that. It's going to be brilliant. And uh, yeah, been, been lent that. It's a 1900 Daimler, and it was the very first car to be imported into South Africa. This is such first date chat, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't had one of those for quite a long time. <laughs> Most of my first dates are pretty yeah, yeah. brief. It's a 1900 Daimler. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
You're not impressed? No. no. Oh, all right. Well, moving <laughs> on then. One less person you have to buy a drink. Yeah, yeah, Let's exactly. move on. Oh, Felix is getting bored. Let's move the conversation on. And um, so, okay, look. The market's looking pretty good. It's looking pretty strong. We've there have been some amazing sales. Uh, uh, so let's sort of bring it round to London. Oh well, actually no. Before we do that, it's a busy time. This because we here we are. It's November the fourth as we speak. We've got an auction this weekend. A couple of us are going to be fireworks tomorrow night, Peter. Both fire, here fire, and outside. Abso- I hope. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's a nice segue from the first date, some fireworks. Uh, uh, and, and, uh, but um, uh, we've got a, a Michael Schumacher, uh, an incredible Michael Schumacher Ferrari Formula One car that we're going to be selling with our friends at Sotheby's in Geneva next week. And then as soon as that's done, we've got Munich. Uh, we got well. We got two events in the Middle East. And we we're that. we've got some we've got some we're sponsoring some events in the Middle East. So it's a really you know busy end to the year, uh, which is great. Uh, and and actually we're already you know uh, Munich is is closed. No more cars for Munich. So we're already busy consigning for Paris at the beginning of February. Um, it kind of feels. I mean, I've been around this world, you know, for, for quite, a long t- quite a long time. It feels busier now than it's ever felt before. It feels You're like right. there's more going on. Well, it's also variety. I mean, we, we, we have the pleasure of this fantastic venue for the London auction. It's the first time. I hope it's not the last. Um, but as you, as you rightly say, in Geneva next week, we're selling a five-win Schumacher, 2003 five-win Schumacher Formula One car. Um, a 2003 GA standing for Gianni Agnelli. It's in wonderful condition. Uh, it's been out on the track with Mick Schumacher. Um, it's approved and certified by Ferrari Classique and also the life cycle of the car. When you look at the report that's been provided by Ferrari, it's like a new Formula One car. So, I mean, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. What's interesting is we're selling it, as you say, Peter, during uh, Sotheby's Geneva Luxury Week. So Sotheby's have various luxury weeks around the world new york london paris and they're doing this one in geneva and obviously there's a good selection of watches there there's also jewelry so we're selling this car in between the watch auction and the jewelry auction but they had their opening cocktail last night a couple of the team were over there said it was from you know incredibly well attended and the car was getting as much attention in the room as anything else so good interest oh and, uh, are we are we trying to market the car as uh, are we suggesting somebody wears it as an item of jewelry is that what is somebody gonna well uh, no uh, but on a serious note Sotheby's has sold uh, Maradona's shirt from the hand of God um, match you know the semi-final of England which we all remember very well maybe Felix less so um, he was he was only one, I think. How old were you in that year? I can't remember. What was it? Eighty-six. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I wasn't born. Long, long, not God, born. That's annoying. Long, anyway, not born. so Sotheby's sold that for around seven million, and more recently, at one of their um, uh, sales, they sold Michael Jordan's vest for over ten million dollars. So when you put that into context, and you just think about that as icons of sporting memorabilia, surely to any buyer of icons of sporting memorabilia, yep. a Ferrari world championship winning car by one of the most successful drivers of all time in a Ferrari uh, in his sixth championship year, and that's the car that he won se- about 70% of the races in, it's going to appeal to car collectors. It's going to appeal to car collectors of a certain age, which perhaps some cars don't, and it's also going to appear to a mu- appeal to a much, much broader audience. 
Yep. And, and yeah. I think that's... 100%. 100%. And, you know, our integration, uh, our, our closer integration with Sotheby's Luxury Division is something that's really um, uh, kind of happened in a more significant way this year, and that's going to continue to happen. And I, and, and I think that... It's not selling that car at a Sotheby's sale. That's not going to be a one-off. I think that you know that's going to be something that we're going to see um, in increasingly, uh, and I think that's great because you take a, a, a room full of cars like this, um, where you know primarily we are attracting an audience of car enthusiasts, car collectors, um, and anything that we can do to bring uh, this hobby, because that's fundamentally what underpins everything that we do, uh, to, a, to a, a bigger audience of people, people that might not otherwise have considered buying a, a, an historic car of any description, is all for the great, certainly for the benefit, that's to the great good of the market. For yeah, a, but for sure. I mean, I think what we've done here as well, we've put a great effort into our event this evening, our, our preview cocktail reception, in looking beyond our sort of database of UK-based car collectors, yeah, known yeah. car collectors, we've looked uh, in the luxury space, we've looked at wealth managers, you know, we're, Mayfair's just up the road, the City of London's just up the road, you've got a lot of wealth in London, like any other major city, but London has a great concentration of it from all over the world, but you know, all of those guys, they want to entertain their clients, they want to host people, they, they will have clients that love cars. And if they see this as a hosting opportunity, you've got a private wealth company or a hedge fund, you bring a couple of clients along to an event like this, and we're just trying to you know, keep evolving our client base. And yep. that's, yep. in my view, a great way to do it. Show them the cars, let them have fun, meet the team, and um, who knows what they might buy in the future. Why don't we just talk a little bit specifically about this sale and what's on offer and some of the, uh, the you know, the, the, this amazing collection that's sort of right behind where we're sitting at the moment and some of the other cars we've, we've, we've got in the room. We have the Gran Turismo collection. Where else have you seen a collection of, let's call them sort of predominantly modern era supercars? When have you lost, when did you last see a collection like this come to market? I can't, it's never happened. I think it's, I think it's rare to see something of this sort of strength and consistency and, and also value. Um, every single car is very interesting in some way, be it the Enzo being super high mileage, and to me that's a great selling point. It's an Enzo you can actually use. There's an, you know, there's a, there's an interest in super low mileage delivery, all original paint cars. That's a different thing, but you can't use those cars. There is, you know, the fundamentals of, your, of most people's car passion is they want to drive. Um, and this is one you can go and drive. Um, I think to that point, Felix, when um, collectors of model cars, dinky toys, lots of things, books, records, traditionally, the price point's different here mm. than a dinky toy, but people would buy one to play with and one to keep in its box as for a collector's yeah, item. Exactly. And that's fair, even with vinyl records, things mm. like that, you, you, you keep it absolutely brand I never new. did that. I wrecked all of my toys. Well, I know, well, you continue to do so. <laughs> He's wrecking the podcast as well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew I was doing something wrong. I've wrecked all my toys. Uh, but no, you're, yeah, yeah, you're right. And, and actually, I mean, and Felix, uh, one of your cars in the sale, the, two, the, the orange 2.7 RS Porsche behind us, not part of the GT collection. But one of the nice things about that, that's an, that, that car's a driver, isn't it? It's done 270,000 kilometres. Yeah. So someone's got to be the first person to take that to 500,000. Yeah. 
how many cars out there in the world that yep. are collectible cars that have done that level and, of mileage. And oh, the Cushway 300SL that we recently sold, funny enough. So nice little plug. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> sold. And what, and what I love in particular about the Porsche is that, you know, there is an obsession and some people very, feel very passionately about it and some, some, and I'm kind of included, feel are less happy with the way the market has gone in terms of its obsession with matching numbers and all of these sorts of things, you know, because back in the day, yeah. uh, you blew up an engine or it got really, really tired. The easiest thing to do was just take it out, throw it away and put in another one. Yeah. You know, I did that, I, you know, humble NG midgets and things like that when I was a teenager. I was forever taking engines out, throwing them away, putting another one in. But, you know... Well, not even throwing them away, in fairness. Well, it was no, an exchange I, unit. Yeah, yeah, ex- you know, or, one or, went away yeah. to rebuild. Yep. And you got one that you could put straight in your car uh, and keep keep motoring. Absolutely, a gold seal, yeah. a, a series yeah. engine. But um, which is the same with racing cars. You know, if, yep. if if people say I've got a matching numbers racing car, I'm actually concerned because you know it must have run around at the back or there's something fishy going on. So I think the same thing should apply to a certain extent with with car with with road cars. But it all comes down to price point, and it's all factored in. You know, you can go and buy a fully matching, genuine 2.7 RS, but it costs a lot more money, and this is estimated much cheaper as a result. It's this is a car that you can go and rally with and not yeah, care about it. But it's still a 2.7 RS, exactly. isn't it? You know, that's the thing because to most people, take that to an event and stick it in the car park. It's a 2.7 RS. Nobody knows whether it's matching numbers, and and honestly, as a, as an enthusiast, and not I'm not really a collector, as you know, but as somebody that buys and owns the odd car. I'd buy it. Well, he I'd stopped collect- collecting because he's had to give up two warehouses, two hangers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't like to talk about it. I, don't, I, I mean, this collection, the, the Gran Turismo collection I'm offering here from my collection, <laughs> I, 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 I've kept that very, very quiet. Um, no, but I think, I think it's, I mean, I, I, I love that 2.7 RS. Yeah. Not the most valuable car in the room, but I just love it for what it is yeah. and kind of for what it represents. But I. But the, 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 the Gran Turismo collection that we, the, 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 that we were just talking about previously, they are, nearly all of these cars have been used and, and loved. But at the same time, they've been wonderfully maintained. You know, they want for nothing. And, uh, and, and, and a lot of them, as you say, Felix, they are, because they've done, some of them have done a few miles, they are, eminently usable cars you know you've got, you're not going to obsess about the odometer clicking around another 500 kilometers and wondering how much depreciation's gone yeah. um, so and there are so many great. events that you can use these cars for be it a supercar driver mm. um, or any event like that supercar owner circle um, or just be it going out with your friends and you can actually go and use your car that you've bought um, yeah. and not worry about it you know, the dominant going over 10,000 kilometres or miles. You can have one car from this entire marquee, or indeed parked outside the marquee. What are you having? What are you taking? Have a punt. Uh, do you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, blow my own trumpet and say the 2.7 RS. Surprise. I know it's kind of a boring answer, but... What about you, Mr. I can't pick one. It's going to be the F40, because I've uh, of that era of supercar, I've always felt that the F40... To me, it still looks modern, visceral, but there's enough horsepower to scare yourself, but not so much that you can't extend it a little bit. Um, 
and the uh, the green Mura SV. Yeah, so I've always lovely. I've always loved Muras. It's Some fabulous in that color. You know, it's the ultimate specification for a Mura. And you know, as a an owner of um, an E-Type Coupe, which I think is one of the most beautiful cars in the world, I definitely think the Mura is up there with yeah. it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Agreed. no, I'm with you. What about uh, you? Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say a car which isn't kind of ordinarily the sort of thing I would go for, but I just think it's just amazing, and that's the white EV110 SS. White, black wheels. You can it's, wear your white cashmere in that. And I can wear my white cashmere in that. Uh, it's great. I think either that or um, 288 GDO. Love those. Yeah. Bit of a, to the uninitiated, Looks like a 308 GTB, doesn't it? I think I think it's worth <laughs> mentioning as Love, well. It's sucking, but you know what I mean. When when they first appeared, it looked very unspectacular because it looked like a 308. You know, I remember with seeing with a body to, kit. Yeah, with a, with a bit of a body kit on it, and 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 obviously to to connoisseurs, they know exactly what a 288 GTO is. But I just think they're so cool. I, th I think it's worth mentioning. Obviously, you've got the Group B rally selection behind us as well, which is just staggering. You know, uh, I, I think the the history of rallying from that Group B era, which was just sort of no holds barred, was extremely exciting to watch. And I imagine to drive as well was extremely exhilarating, but also the Jaguars here. We've got the um, you know XJ220S, there's only five of those. They were homologation cars for Le Mans. The XGR15, which in fact hasn't been driven very much. I believe this is only 200 miles on the clock. Uh, great Peter Stevens design, who of course went on to shape the McLaren F1, and then you've got the road version of the XJ220. So you know a good lineup of Jaguars. Um, you know, top he's, a, of, he's a Jaguar man. I'm so a Jaguar man, but I think when you look at what they were achieving in these days, and when you look at values compared to F40s, McLaren F1s, you know the Jaguars that were of similar performance levels yep. um, are a fraction of the price. I think 220 is a good value. Thank you everyone for joining us on the RM Sotheby's Car Show here from our marquee at Marlborough House uh, for our London auction. Hope you've enjoyed the conversation with Sam, it's been fascinating. So uh, join us again next time, thank you.